Well, amen. Welcome to Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle. Whether you're watching online or in here or in the lobby, we see you. Welcome. I can't believe it's already November. And, and did it get cold out quickly here? I mean, right? I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I always, uh, my parents are going, you know, what's the weather like down here? And I, and I always tell them that it's warm until exactly right the day after Halloween. Then it just gets cold here. And by the way, what is it with Americans and stacking all of our holidays together? Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, I can't handle it. Uh, guys, but welcome. Uh, I hope you guys are doing well. When you got here a couple weeks ago, if you've been with us, we're in a, in a series that's going to last five weeks, and today we're right in the middle of it. It's called the Forward Series. We're calling it the Forward Initiative with it. And if you didn't get one of these books, we'll hand you one when you, when you leave, or you can go to the Welcome Tent, or we've got an online copy of it. And, and what that book is about, I, I won't spend a lot of time on it, uh, except uh, it's about how, as a church, we're going deeper and wider and growing stronger. It's how we're growing numerically, spiritually, organizationally. And so the conviction of this series is that every church should move forward in, in how we're moving forward in that book. But, but even more than that, and here's what I hope you hear, whether you're watching online or you're in here, it's that you, individual Christian, you, individual believer, or your family, Christian family, or new married Christian couple, you are supposed to go forward. The conviction of this series is that every Christian can go forward in their faith and that every Christian should go forward in their faith. That's the conviction. In fact, here's what we know. The only way to create positive emotion that we know of, and, and by the way, I love when you know psychology and sociology and, and anthropology catch up to the Bible, okay? <laughs> we know this. There's only one way, and some of you could use a lot more positive emotion in your life, let's be honest, right? Uh, there's one way that we know to create positive emotion. It's the pursuit of a worthy goal and seeing that you're making progress. That's the only way that you create. That's that positive feedback loop. I'm actually pursuing, my life is hard, but I'm doing something valuable and I'm making progress. And so what we wanna help you do is, is to move forward in your faith. And, and, and a part of that is, there's a, there's a financial element to that, because when you move forward in your faith, it does touch your finances. And so we, we have a commitment card, and you got these, and, and we'll give you these in a couple weeks at, uh, on Commitment Sunday. Let me just tell you about that for a second. The commitment card, here, we have two goals. Uh, the number one goal in the series is 100% participation, that everybody who calls Two Cities Church home would give a gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings before the end of the year to this initiative. And, he, and here's the ask. If you love our church, would you give? Because here's the truth, you can give without loving. We, we've done that before, we've all done that before. But it is actually technically impossible to love without giving, right? I mean, finish this. For God so loved the world that he gave. Because if you love, you will give. So the, the first kind of desire is, hey, 100% participation, let, let's all give to this initiative because we love this church and we love what God's doing and we're so grateful. Secondly, we have a goal, $2 million dollars to come in above and beyond normal tithes and offerings before the end of the year. Now, that is a lot of money, right? I mean, our last initiative was $250,000 four years ago. So this is eight times as large as our last initiative, but we're seeing God go before us. I'll give you a story. I mean, this last week, um, we had a, uh, a I was telling me, he was talking to his young kids. He's got like a four-year-old and two other young kids. And his four-year-old, uh, they were talking about giving to the Ford initiative. And his four-year-old said, I got an idea. Yeah, I'm going to give to the Ford Initiative, she says. I'm going to give a little bit of money that I have. She says, let's put a jar on the dining room table, and whenever someone comes over, we ask them to give to it, to give to the Ford Initiative. <laughs> Future pastor, I'm telling you. 
And I, love it. I had another, another couple, and a uh, married couple, and they were praying. Um, he's a friend of mine, and he was telling me, he said, he said, we were praying, and I was burdened. What should I give to the Ford Initiative? He says, and I'm in the middle of the worship service last week, and I feel the Holy Spirit say to me, he says, I have this impression, your wife knows what to give. He says, so I get home. Some of you husbands go, uh-oh, right? <laughs> I don't know. He says I, he says, I go home, and I say to my wife, how was the worship service? Did the Lord speak to you during the worship service? She said, yes. He told me what we need to give the initiative. What a reminder that this is, some of us, right, we're doing math, we're doing calculus, <laughs> we're, we're, doing, we're, we're trying to figure this out, it, it, it's, it, we're thinking about it, we're not praying about it. It's all very spiritual. Or I'll tell you another interesting story. So, you know, I'm so encouraged. You know, I pick on millennials a lot. I'm actually a millennial myself, a geriatric millennial, okay? <laughs> geriatric millennial. If you're born after 1982, you're a millennial. In this, in this in 82 to whatever it is, 90, 92 or something like that. Um, anyway, in, you know, millennials are known for not being generous culturally. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of organizations, lots of churches, lots of mission agencies, they're worried because who pays for everything is the builders and the boomers. And the builders, uh, frankly, are dying, and the boomers are retiring. So everybody's, how's everything going to get paid for is what, what people are wondering. And I'm encouraged because we're seeing generosity happen at, at all different levels. In fact, we had a millennial couple, a young family in our church, who God has blessed their business, gave $100,000 to the initiative this last week. Unbelievable. I, when, I, when I heard that as a young family, I thought, that's like four years of college. Or if you go to Wake, one year of college. <laughs> right? But I just, I was overwhelmed because I, I was reminded to me, it's not, it's not about, you know, equal about, it's about equal sacrifice. And we're, and we're seeing people step out. And so what are we going to do with all this money, you know, we're, th that's going to come in? We've already have over, you know, half a million dollars that's been committed of the two million. Well, we're going to, we're going to use it to go forward as a church. And we're also going to use it to help other uh, churches go forward locally, nationally, globally, uh, and other church planning movements. Um, and what we're doing nationally is we're planting churches. We have helped to plant 10 churches, if you don't know this, if you're new. We've helped to plant 10 churches in five years here. And we're going to help Plaza Church and Brian Davis. By the way, Brian was the one who was here a couple weeks ago preaching. I've had a couple of you already tell me that you're leaving. And <laughs> really, seriously. And, and it's okay because we love people deeply and we hold them loosely. I've had a couple of you go, hey, I'm going to leave. We're going to go. I think we're going to be part of this church. And I, I, by the way, we're one of the only churches I know that I get up here and I basically ask you guys to leave. Please don't come to my church anymore. Please don't come here anymore. <laughs> we want you to go to different churches. We want you, but I'm excited. I had one young single man come up to me after the first service said, I think God's doing something in my heart. I've lived in Winston my whole life. But I'm feeling that God might be calling me to move to Charlotte to be a part of uh, Plaza Church. So we're very, very excited about it. What we're going to do is we're going to take of whatever comes in, we're going to take 10% of it. We're going to give it locally, nationally, globally. Part of that 10% we're going to give to, he doesn't know this unless he's listening, but uh, we're going to give it to Brian Davis and to Plaza Church because they, that he's, what's he, what he's doing is called, it's called replanting or remissioning or repur a lot of re's, right? Repurposing, okay? Um, he's taking an old church and he's come in and be the senior pastor and he's bringing in a new core team. And see, one of the convictions is that churches should live longer than people. Churches should last longer than humans do. And they do that when, you think, when things get passed on generationally. So he's got this brand new kind of young, vibrant people in an old building with old technology. And so what we're gonna do is, we're going to give a generous gift to him off of what comes in here to help him to upfit his facility and upfit his technology. And I think it's going to help them go further faster. And I think it's going to help them minister to this kind of urban, up and coming community that is NODA in Charlotte. So let's pray for that. And then we're going to dive in to uh, Acts chapter 4. Lord, we, we just continually each week thank you 
for the generosity of our church. Shown in stories of a, of a little kid wanting to give to the Ford Initiative or a couple praying about it and feeling the Holy Spirit telling them what to give or a millennial couple who you have blessed giving a significant financial gift at a young age. Or we feel a stewardship and a responsibility. We want to use these resources to help the gospel go forward. And we particularly pray for Brian Davis and for Plaza Church and the unique opportunity that he has. We pray that we would be able to give them this gift and it would, it would help them to upfit their facility, upfit their technology so that they can get the message and the mission and the ministry of Jesus to more people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to Acts chapter 4. As you're turning there, we're in this series, we're looking at how did the first church move forward, and then how do we move forward? And as you turn there, we're studying the book of Acts, and we don't really, I mean, now half of my job is, is you know, to, to study the Bible and teach the Bible to you guys. Uh, so we are a Bible church, but we do not study the Bible as scholars, primarily. We don't study the Bible from an ivory tower. We study the Bible as missionaries and practitioners. In fact, I actually, the way that I understand teaching and preaching, you may not know this about yourself, but you are a practical theologian. That's what you are. That's what you want. You want to know, how do I, how do I work on my marriage? Why am I so sad sometimes? How do I talk to my kids about Jesus? How do I make money? How do I walk through sickness and stuff? You're a practical theologian. How do I live my life? What does the Bible say? Help me live it out. Well, that's what we're doing. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the book of Acts, seeing how did the first church move forward, and then how do we move forward? And I'm not necessarily skipping over Acts 3, but I'll summarize it because we were in Acts 2 last week. To get to Acts 4, because Acts 3 and 4, you know this, and you're, until the 1500s, no, sorry, until the 1200s, there were no chapter divisions in the Bible. Until the 1500s, there were no verses. Like, you know, number verses. And so, it, you know, there's, there's no division between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so what happens in chapter 3 is Peter and John, and they're two of Jesus' best friends, uh, they were kind of his inner circle. It says at the beginning of chapter 3, you can turn there if you want to, but I'm not going to read it. But in at the beginning of chapter 3, they're just saying, hey, let's go pray. So Peter and John are praying, and then they, they, they meet this guy who's poor and paralyzed. He's called a lame beggar. He's got two problems. So he's got more than two problems. He's got two real big problems. He's poor and he's paralyzed. And he asked them for money, and then Peter says, I, I don't have money, but in the name of Jesus, get up. And there's this massive miracle that happens. This is the beginning of chapter 3. And then the miracle is followed by a message, and this is important to know. And we keep saying this because Christians get confused about this. The miracles are there so that the message can go forward. You, you, all the time, whether it's Jesus or his disciples, there are good works that are done so that good words can be done, can be said. There are good deeds. You'll see this in here. There are good deeds that are done so that good news can be taught. And so what ends up happening is in chapter 3, there's a miracle and a message. There are good words and good works. They, they serve and they speak, and then they get in trouble. And this is where I want to pick up. If you'll look at me at Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. And as they were speaking to the people, what is going to get you in trouble? Is serving people going to get you in trouble? No. Is building habitat for humanity houses going to get you in trouble? Is putting wells in Africa going to get you in trouble? The answer is no. There's one thing that gets Christians in trouble. It's opening their mouth and talking about Jesus. And one of my goals today, as weird as this may say, is to encourage you to get in a little bit of gospel trouble. Some of you, your lives are way too boring and they're way too safe and no one knows you're a Christian except for Jesus. And it would be, I would, there would be nothing that would be more exciting to me if, if you came next Sunday and said, 
Pastor Kyle, I got in some gospel trouble at work for Jesus. I would say two things. Amen. And let's get you a good Christian lawyer. But, but, <laughs> but I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you because you're doing something. You're saying something. You're making a difference. We always see that op opposition and opportunities go together. That conflict, right, and conversion happened. They happened in the same chapter. If some Wake Forest students said, we were at Wake's campus and we started sharing the gospel in the dorms and we got in some gospel trouble, I would say, awesome. Awesome. Because this means that you're opening your mouth and you're telling people about Jesus. And when that happens, we'll see this, people get saved and people get upset. And so, and so look what happens here. They, they get in trouble right away. I mean, we're in the fourth chapter of the, of, the, of the early church, and here's what happens. Verse one, and as they were speaking to the people, guess who shows up? Guess who gets angry? Religious people, goofy religious people. Is this city full of goofy religious people? Yes, we love them. Are some of you goofy religious people? Yes, you are. Look what it says. It says, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> That's true. I couldn't pass that joke up. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the Sadducees came upon them. Okay. Now, th this is what happens. And, and this was Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised, right? Jesus was persecuted by religious people. Um, Church, basically here's what happens. The church is about to change and church people who've always been in the church don't like it. And, and this is why I always try to spend some time talking about the difference between religion and the gospel. And I love Winston-Salem, I really do. I'm, I'm planning on being here for a long time. I think it's a great place to raise your family. I love how convenient everything is. But it is the most religiously lost city I've ever been in. People who are in church but not in Christ. People who are convinced but not converted. People who have been baptized but don't really believe. This city is full of it. And so I have to continue. I wouldn't necessarily do this if I was teaching and preaching in San Francisco. But I have to continue to talk about the difference between religion and the gospel. See, religion is about you or about me. And the gospel is about Jesus. Religion is about external conformity. The gospel is about internal transformation. Religion says there are good people and there are bad people. And the good people are in the church and the bad people are out in the world. And the gospel says there are bad people and there's Jesus. And that's it. Religion says the people out there need to repent of things that we don't struggle with in here. And the gospel says we all need to repent. And some of us, the first thing we need to repent of is our religion. The way that we're trying to impress God in some way or the way that we pridefully think that we're better than others. So all of these religious people show up and they get upset. Let's see what happens. Um, it says this, they were greatly annoyed. This is what religious people do, verse two. Uh, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So these people get annoyed. Now listen, I'm not gonna name names here, but we had this experience when we moved as a church to, to Winston-Salem. There was 30 of us and we moved here and I went and I met with the church and if I said its name, you would know it. And I talked to the associate pastor and I said, hey, listen, just for the summer, can we have all of our launch team meetings at your church? And the associate pastor said, yeah. I said, well, this is great. So I actually called Pastor Dave, hey, we got it. Whew, that's a big deal. We got all of our meetings for all summer scheduled. I get an email the next day from the associate pastor. He probably shouldn't have written this down, but he did. 
Um, he said, sorry, talk to my senior pastor. He doesn't like J.D. Greer. You guys can no longer use our building. I thought, that's the religious spirit. The religious spirit is territorial. The religious spirit is all about self-preservation. The religious spirit is, I need these people to give money and fill these seats and, and pay for these buildings. No one can leave. That's the religious spirit. Well, here's what they have. So, so here's what happened, verse 3. And they arrested them. So it's, it's chapter 4, verse 3. It's the first time they're persecuted. They end up in jail. They end up doing prison ministry from the inside. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, this is something we're thinking about. The, the disciples don't seem to be upset that they're getting arrested. They don't seem to be angry that they're getting arrested. They don't seem to be surprised that they're getting arrested. And you go, well, why wouldn't they be surprised? Well, maybe they knew somebody else who also got arrested. Does anyone else know somebody that they may know and follow and love that had gotten arrested? His name's Jesus, right? I mean, think about it first. What are the expectations that you have for your life, Christian? I know not everyone in here is a Christian, but for Christians, like, what is the expectations? Is Christianity just a way for your life to kind of put together and for your kids not to act too crazy? Is that what Christianity is for you? Because we literally follow a guy who was crucified. I don't know what expectations you should have for your life based on that. We follow a guy who was betrayed by one of his best friends. We follow a guy, if you read the Gospels, who was misunderstood by his family most of his life. We follow a guy who had an unjust trial and died a criminal's death. We follow a guy who was a marginalized Galilean poor peasant, humanly speaking. I don't, and he said, what they did to me, they're going to do to you. He told us. Part of it is like just, all right, part of growing up, part of being mature is change your perspective, change your expectations for your life. They, they are not surprised. Now, for us, we are so surprised by any type of persecution, right? You read the early church, the first 300 years of the church, there were 10 waves of persecution, massive. I mean, you wouldn't even believe the stories. People being fed to lions, people being dipped in wax and lit on fire. I mean, horrible things. And today, some of you think persecution is someone saying to you, happy holidays. <laughs> Can we just agree that Starbucks not putting a Christmas tree on the Christmas cup is not persecution? <laughs> right? What we experience in America is not, the is, not, is not the fear of the raised fist. It's the fear of the raised eyebrow. That's what we fear. It's the persecution of the ego. Somebody might think I'm strange. And, and, it, and let's just be honest. We don't like to be different than the people that we're around. It's weird. I, don't, I mean, it's maybe not a theological word, but it, it doesn't feel right to go, I think very differently than they do. I believe very differently than they do. And I may get uninvited or not invited to certain things. Or somebody, God forbid, might write a mean comment on my Facebook post. Let's see what happens to them. So they, they get in jail, they get arrested, but look what happens. Verse four, but many of those who had heard the word believed. Sometimes we thought, well, no, if we're bold and if we stand up for Jesus and other people don't like it, the message won't go forward. The exact opposite happens. The message goes forward. Look, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. I love it. Somebody's counting. 
I'm not sure who. Somebody is, 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 is writing it down. There was 120, then there was 3,000. Now there is 5,000 people, right? We always say here, we count people because people count. Does God count people? I don't know. He has a book called Numbers. <laughs> I think he might count. And we do that because we know that, you know, if we're going, we have to be able to measure something if we're going to be able to minister to that person. And we know that every number represents a soul, it represents a story, it represents a son or a daughter. But the, the interesting thing, if you look at verse 4, it says there was 5,000 men. Now, again, the temptation is to do what C.S. Lewis does, is to read the Bible in what he calls chronological snobbery. Where we read it, we go, ha, ha, ha. How silly were those people back then? Weren't they so silly? They only counted men back then. Do you see that? If you look at the text, it says 5,000 men. So we actually don't even know how many people. Was it 10,000? Was it 15,000? Well, it's because they knew something back then that we today have forgotten. And it's, it's simply this. If you get the men, you get everybody else. They don't need to go how many women and children because they're all coming. If you get the men, you get everyone else. We know this statistically. So if a child is the first to believe in a family, the chance that the rest of the family, that mom and dad and brother and sister all come to faith in Christ, if one person, if a child is the first to believe in that family, is three and a half percent chance. And I've talked to many of you, and you're heartbroken. My dad doesn't believe. My mom doesn't believe. My older brothers don't believe. Now, you go, well, what if mom believes? Because she's super important, and she is super important. And we've got a lot of this in our church. Moms believe, and they're married to unbelieving men who won't come to church or show up church, come to church and are bored. Don't go to the weekend or don't want to get in community group, and it's all a diagnostic of their own lack of spiritual life. Anyway, so... Um, if, if, a, if, a, if mom comes to faith in Christ, the chance that the rest of the family comes to faith in Christ, 17%. And you go, well, that's five times more likely than if, you know, if child comes to faith in Christ, that's good. If dad comes to faith in Christ, chance that everybody else in the family comes to faith in Christ, 93%. Don't tell me dad doesn't matter. And so what they, what they know is, okay, we don't need to count everybody else because if we get the dads and we get the husbands, everybody else comes with them. This is why we are so grateful here that the ladies love Jesus. We've got so many ladies coming around here. We want strong women leading. We saw in chapter two, the women and men equally get the Holy Spirit, but we need men, right? Each of you probably know five men who need to be here right now. They're wasting their lives. They're working on their third goofy hobby right? They're workaholics. They're trying to find free porn on the internet. This is what they're doing. Maybe they've had success, but they've never had significance. They need to repent. They need to enter the kingdom of God, and they need to get on mission. That's what changes churches, and that's what changes cities. So they count the men. Let's see what happens. So they do that. There's, there's people coming to faith in Christ, and then look what happens in verse, verse 5. More religious people show up. Here it is. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. You go, why so many names? Because these are real people. The Bible is a historical book. The Bible, our faith is not based on fairy tale or happenstance or circumstance or, or you know, something else. It's based on historical events and what they mean. And so at the very end of, of verse 6, there's this moment where they're going to have to, they're going to be asked, we'll see this in a second, they're going to be asked a question. 
And what we're going, and we're going to see in verses seven, eight, and following the, the big idea for this whole passage, which is, I'll say it as simply as I know, you need to face your fears and say your prayers. Right. So if if you think about it, if you if you like, to, I always like to connect everything in the series. What did we talk about week one? We talked about faith. We talked about taking God at His word and taking your next step. Right. We talked about the Holy Spirit gives you faith. It's the supernatural strength to do what God has said. That's power. Week two, we talked about fellowship. Fellowship, right? You've got to fight for your fellowship. You, you, got, you, got, you, you can't do life alone. You can think of it this way. If week one was believe, week two is belong. If week one was have faith, week two was have fellowship. So this week is, if it's faith, fellowship, it's now face your fears. If, it's, if it was believe and belong, it's now be bold, right? And some of you are just so scared. It like defines your life. You, you, don't, you don't have clinical anxiety where you need to take medi- medication. You have what we call circumstantial anxiety. And some of you, the, the, the job you've taken, the path you've taken, the friends you have, the neighborhood you live in, it's all to avoid your fears. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see the early disciples, they face their fears and they say their prayers. And again, I said this earlier, but it's great when you see sociology and psychology and, you know, and counseling and everything catch up to the Bible, because here's what we know. All counselors agree, they don't agree on much uh, at all, but, 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 all, but all counselors agree that the only way you overcome your fears, only way, there's only one way to overcome your fears, you voluntarily and incrementally confront them. It works every time. That's how you, that's how you overcome your fears. Some of you are so afraid. And a lot of our fears have to do with speaking. Almost all of your fears has something that you need to say to somebody. And so what we see with the early church is they say their, they say their prayers, they face their fears. They say their prayers, they face their fears. And that's the rest of our lives. That's what boldness is. It's a willingness to face our fears and say our prayers. So look what happens here. Verse 7, they're asked a question. This is the moment. Are they going to face their fears? He says this, and when they had set them in the midst... So the religious people come out and they take Peter and John and they put them in public so that everybody can hear them, right? This is what's going to happen with you. Your boss is going to say something to you in front of all of your coworkers. Your professor is going to call you out in front of all of your classmates. You're going to be at a neighborhood block party and somebody's going to say to you in front of everybody else, do you really believe this? And then you're going to be like, oh gosh, I'm answering this in front of everybody. He says this, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, Imagine, just for a moment, just let your imagination go. Imagine if Peter said nothing. I mean, this is a, I mean, humanly speaking, we know God's sovereign. This is a huge moment for the life of the church. I, I want you to understand that you are here today because other people were not silent. That's why you're here. If you go, how, how did this church get planted? How did, how did things, how did the gospel come to America? There's one answer. Somebody wasn't silent. That's the answer. And so this is this moment, when, and there's going to be a temptation when you're asked a question for you to either be silent and say nothing, or for you to say something vague and fuzzy, like hey, we're all on a spiritual journey. I mean, could you imagine, Peter? Well, I, I, all I want to say is we're all on a spiritual journey. Actually, all I want to say is Jesus is against poverty. It's like you didn't say anything. Everybody's against poverty. Well, God is our father and humanity is our brother. What? You, you didn't say anything. We're going to see he gets very, very specific. Now, listen, here's why this is important, because you're going to get, you're, I promise you, let's think about this together. This will be convicting, but helpful. 
I bet there's a good chance that by Tuesday you're going to get asked a question that you could turn, maybe by the end of Monday, you're going to get asked a question that you could turn and talk about Jesus using that question, if you were honest. Or you could take the fuzzy, vague way out. Let me, let me, tell, you, let me tell you a story. Uh, when I was in college ministry, we used to have these summer camps. We called them beach projects, but we went to camp basically for eight weeks, and we grew a lot over the summer. And they would always do, at the very end of it, what they called return training. And we would do these summer camps at the beach, and during return training, it'd be like two days long, they'd say, hey guys, listen, you're about to leave camp, and you're about to go home to your parents, and then from there, you're going to go back to school. And for the first two weeks that you're in college, you're going to get asked, I mean, what question does everyone ask, right, for the first two weeks of college? What did you do this summer? And it was a challenge. I said, you're gonna, here, here's, you, could, you could say, you have an opportunity right there to say, I grew a lot in my relationship with Jesus Christ, and here's how. And here's what. Or you could say this. I hung out at the beach with my friends and it was a lot of fun. They're both true. You guys are going to get asked this question probably on Monday. What did you do this weekend? Now you're thinking, I wish I wouldn't have come to church. Okay. <laughs> but what did I do this weekend? I mean, it's a, it's a great, right? The, the, and you're going to wrestle with that. Am I going to let them know? Am I going to open up? Am I going to share? And again, not in weird ways, but, but how do you say, you know, you, believe me, there are questions. Hey, why did you go to part-time? Help me understand that. What's important to you? Tell me a little bit about your family. I want you to know these are all open doors and on-ramps and invitations to do something and talk. Let's see what Peter does in verse 8. It says this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you dance. Although you might. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you get really emotional. Although you might. Every example in the, that we have in the book of Acts of being filled with the Holy Spirit is boldly speaking God's word. Here's what it says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous pastor in uh, London. He gave the best illustration I've ever heard of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, do you want to know what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? He said, it's like, he said, it's like you're a child and you're walking, holding your dad's hand. You're a young child, you're walking, holding your dad's hand. And you know your dad loves you. That's what it means to be a Christian. He says, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is when your dad gets down on one of his knees and says, I love you, son, so much. I'm so proud of you. I love being your dad. I love that you're my son. And you pick him up, and you give him a big hug, and you give him a big kiss, and you put him back down. He said, did the dad love the kid any more before and after? No. Did the kid have a new experience of his father's love for him? Yes. And did it motivate him? Yes. When you are motivated, you know, God loves me. God is with me. God is for me. Christ has done all that I need in his life and death and resurrection. It fills you with the Holy Spirit to speak. Some of you, you just, you won't speak. You don't even know why you won't. You won't articulate yourself. You won't, you won't say what you believe. You won't stand up for yourself. We need more people who have the courage to speak and to suffer. Now, listen, I, I mean, I struggle with this, right? We all struggle with this. And here's the truth. The longer that we are silent and we don't speak, and we don't tell others about Jesus and what he means for us and for our families, the more awkward it gets, Right? Because some of you have come up to me before and you've told me, hey, the whole idea of reaching my neighbors is great, but I've not said anything to my neighbors in 14 years. I mean, this is great for the young couple who moves downtown in their new apartment complex, but I've not been a good neighbor for 12 years. Okay, I get it. It's hard. 
I'll tell you, recently, you know, they, they often say that if you don't humble yourself, God will humiliate you, right? I, I, this happened to me recently. Because, you know, as you guys all know, I'm a pastor, and so I, I don't always want to lead with that. I love what I do, but it's just the way that people respond to that, you know? And so recently, I, when I'm not here, you know, um, I'm, uh, one of the other things I do on the weekend is I'm an assistant soccer coach. Keyword there is assistant, okay? <laughs> I'm really assistant to the soccer coach. Um, but um, for my son's soccer team, and well, I meet this, the, the head coach, and he's a really nice guy, and, and I, I start thinking, I need to share the gospel with him. I find out he's from Buffalo, New York, and he's moved down here, and I'm like, okay. And so I even go back to my community group, and I say, guys, pray for me. I'm looking for the, 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 the door to kind of share the gospel with them. And so, you know, one practice goes by, and then we have a game, and another practice goes by, and then we have a game, and then we're at another practice. And I'm like, I got to share the gospel with this guy. I'm like, I'm starting to feel bad. I'm like, I've not gotten to it yet. And, he, and so we're talking. I said, what's going on, man? He says, oh, not much. He says, uh, went to church last weekend. I thought, okay. I thought, okay, maybe he goes to one of those, like, theologically liberal mainline churches. He's religiously lost. That's okay. I said, I said, I said, really? I said, where'd you go to church? He said, two cities. <laughs> he said, yeah, I've been watching online for months. I said, I said what? He said, he says, I didn't want you to have to be my pastor while you're also the coach here and everything like that. But I just had this moment where I was, Lord, I, I, I was paralysis by analysis. I was overthinking it, and the Lord uses this guy to go, dude, I'm in your church. <laughs> uh, I, I, I completely flipped in the past, but I was like, why haven't you been coming in person? <laughs> we had a good conversation. Um, uh, no, but the, the Lord humbled me. Um, you know, we've got to be more bold, guys. Everybody else is bold, right? The world's bold, right? The women trying to sell you essential oils, Bold! <laughs> Bold. The person trying to get you to join their CrossFit gym, too bold. The vegan telling you that she's vegan, way too bold, way too bold. We got lots of bold people out there. Okay, verse nine. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then he gets really secret insensitive again. Whom you crucified, God, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is rejected by man, but accepted by God. By the way, that's what the resurrection means. The resurrection is the way that God says, I accept what Jesus has done. That's what the resurrection means. I resurrected him because he is my son and his payment for sins is final. And then, here we go, the, the most clear verse on the exclusivity of Jesus in the Bible is verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Peter doesn't say, well, there are multiple paths, and we're all kind of in a dark room touching an elephant. And this is a common kind of philosophy. And we're all touching a different part of the elephant, and we're all just, it's one elephant, but we're all confused. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say all ideologies and all perspectives and all lifestyles are the same. He says this, and there is salvation in no one else. Why? For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Really, the logic of the gospel says, listen, we, sin is a massive problem. There, there are two things that God desires for your life. 
that your life be perfect and that your sins be punished. That's a good way to think about what God desires from you. That your life be perfect and that any of your sins be punished. Well, you can't live a perfect life, right? I mean, how are you doing? You don't even do everything you tell other people to do, right? I mean, you can't keep your New Year's resolutions uh, until the Super Bowl, right? You do things you've told yourself you would never do. And you, you don't do things you keep asking yourself to do. This is just you. We're not even talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about how you are a terrible boss and a worse employee <laughs> to yourself. So it's like, do, do not think that you want to stand before God naked, bare, alone, at the end of time, standing on your own record. Believe me, you don't. This is why Jesus' life is as important as his death. He lived a sinless, perfect life in our place. That's why the Gospels are filled with his life. He lived a life that you and I cannot live. But then secondly, Jesus paid the penalty and paid the punishment for our sins. He became our perfection and our punishment. Right there, are, Your sins have to be punished. You can either transfer trust to Christ and what he's done, or we would not recommend the second option. Or you can pay for your sin forever in hell. And when you understand this, you understand how sweet the gospel is. Now, Christianity is the most exclusive religion. Every person can only come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for some reason, and I understand it, but that offends people. But to me, it's always like if there was a massive burning building, the building's burning, and I'm running down the steps and I see one exit, I don't stand there and go, well, there's just one exit here. I'd like there to be at least three exits, I mean, in a building. It's like, no, I go, this building is falling apart. And I thank God that there's one exit. I don't complain about it. I don't say that there should be more exits. I get out of that building through that exit. That's what I do. So Christianity is most exclusive, but it's most inclusive. Here's what I mean by inclusive. Anybody can believe. They have to believe and repent and trust in Jesus alone. They have to have personal, conscious, saving faith in Jesus, but anyone can believe. You go, well, what if I'm white? Yes. What if I'm black? Yes. What if I'm Asian? Yes. What if I'm rich? Yes. What if I'm poor? Yes. What if I have no money? Yes. What if I have a low IQ? Yes. What if I like NASCAR? Yes. 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 Um, the, the whole point is any person, no matter what they've done, no matter what's been done to them, they can come to faith in Christ. And so he says this, and then look what he says in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, can I just encourage you? People need to see your boldness for Jesus. It's part of what, what happens to them is they go, oh, he really believes this stuff. She really believes this stuff. Let me tell you this. Parents, your kids need to witness you witnessing. That's what changes and transforms people. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, they didn't go to medical school. They didn't go to residency. They couldn't get into Wake Forest. And God used them. Let me tell you, I got good news for you. If you are educated, God can still use you. For the rest of us, I'm very, very grateful that God uses humble, common, uneducated people. He often does that so that it's very clear who gets the glory. It's God getting the glory. It says this, Peter and John had perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized, here's the key, they'd been with Jesus. It's not about ability, it's about availability. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign, and I told you earlier, that's what the miracle was. The miracle was a sign to get you to the message. 
For a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is the first uh, instance in the New Testament of civil disobedience. We see civil disobedience multiple times in the Old Testament. The midwives disobey a command to kill babies. Uh, Daniel disobeys the command to worship false gods. We see civil disobedience, but this is the first time we see it in the New Testament. It says this, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak. This is so important. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, why they were so energized and eager to speak about Jesus is they had a personal experience with him. I think one of the reasons, honestly, if we, and I know church is no place to be honest, but if just for a moment, if we could be honest, I think the reason that we're not more evangelistic, it's not that we don't, we don't have the techniques. It's not that... It's not that we don't have the tools. It's that we're not personally experiencing the gospel and personally having a dynamic daily relationship with Jesus that's actually changing us and changing our marriages and changing our families to where we feel like, I have to speak about this because it's so privately and personally compelling that I need to publicly talk about it. Well, what happens here is they're warned, they're threatened. This is, and they have to decide, you know, this is what Christians want to do. We want to be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. And basically, we cannot have the forward progress of the message and the ministry and the mission of Jesus be hindered. And so they're going to They're going to go, listen, guys, I know you told us not to speak. And, and in general, the, the heart of a Christian is, in general, I like to do what the government asked me to do, in general, because I understand that God has ordained the government and the family and the church, but I can't, the, the government cannot forbid me to do something the scripture tells me I must do. Right? And he can't tell me to do something the scripture forbids me to do. And so what they end up doing is they say, we're going to continue to speak. This is why, by the way, there's no such thing as a closed country. There's no such thing as a closed college campus. Every once in a while you hear this, because I've been in the college campus, where, oh, you can't go to that campus. What? That would be an unintelligible concept to the Apostle Paul. Could you imagine him trying to explain to the Apostle Paul, sorry, you can't go there. They don't like Christians there. Paul, Paul Beck, of course they don't like Christians there. Not, there's no Christians there yet. Well, Paul, you know, this actually happened in Acts chapter 20. Like, Paul, listen, you're going to go to jail. Paul's like, it's okay to live as Christ and to die as game. No, Paul, you don't understand. You're going to go to jail. You're going to do prison ministry from the inside. Well, then I'll lead people to Christ. And that's what he ends up doing. He ends up leading the jailer to Christ and his whole family to Christ. There's no such thing as a closed campus. There's no such thing as a closed country. There's only places it's harder to preach a second sermon. That's all it is. And so he goes on, and here's what he says. So then they go, and they need to pray. Look at this. When they, when they were released... They went to their friends. You need some fellowship, right? If you're going to face your fears, you need some fellowship. You're going to need some relationships that you can run back to. This is their community group. This is what happens. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They go back. I love it. And they tell stories, right? The problem with us is many of us don't have any stories. This is why we have to travel. It's the only stories we have. We need to spend $10,000 and go to Europe because that's the only stories we have. We have no stories in our life. This is why we have to continually watch five, six, seven seasons of shows because we have no stories. We have no personal stories. So we are fascinated by everybody else's stories. This is why especially so many young men are obsessed with video games because they have no real war they're fighting. We Think about our grandparents' generation. They, were, they had stories. 
They had stories of struggle. They had stories of suffering. You ever talk to a missionary, I'll tell you what you get, stories. You talk to an evangelist, guess what you get? Stories. We should have more stories. Peter, John, they go back to their friends and we don't know exactly what they say. They say something like this, guys, we are gonna go praying. And then we met this, this, this guy and he was poor and he was paralyzed and I didn't know what to do exactly and he asked me for money and you know I don't have a lot of money. And so I, I, did, I didn't know if this would work. I said, in Jesus' name, you know, and he's healed. And then I only have one sermon, so I preach the same, I preach the same sermon I always preach. And, and it gets me in trouble, but at the same time, 2,000 people are baptized. So he tells the story, and then they decide together, let's pray. Let's look at this. It says this. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Can I tell you, you need to pray more, and you need to pray more with other people. And you need to get through the awkwardness. You need to go, okay, it's awkward. I know we haven't prayed. I know, I know, you know, husband or wife, we haven't prayed together very much. And so it's going to get awkward for just a little bit as we try to learn how to do this. I know family, we've not prayed much together. We're going to learn how to do this. And we can't go around it. We've got to go through the awkwardness. And we're going to repent. Sorry, I've not been a good dad in leading the family in this area. We're going to start praying together. And so they cry out together. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And they said, sovereign Lord, you don't really need both those words. They mean the same thing. Sovereign means Lord. Lord means sovereign. But they, they're getting the point across. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We always say this, but before they start praying, they start praising. Right? Before they're seeking God's hand, they're seeking God's heart. Before they're requesting a bunch of stuff, they're, they're full of reverence and worship. It says this, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, so they understand scripture as written down by man, but ultimately inspired by God. That's how we believe scripture is. And so they pray scripture. They pray Acts, or sorry, they pray Psalm 2. You know what Psalm 2 is about? Psalm 2 is about a brand new king being installed in Israel and all the other kings not liking him. Oh, that's really about Jesus. They understand that. So look what they do. By the way, the reason we pray the Psalms is the Psalms, if you read all 150 Psalms, it is the spectrum of human experience and human emotion. The whole Bible speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. So that's a great place to go to increase your prayer life. It says this, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So they, they go and they, they go to pray. Now, let me ask you this but before we finish their prayer. How do you pray? And I'm not here to make you feel guilty, but let's just be honest. Most of us, the problem is we don't pray. There's missing prayers in our lives. You have not, James says, because you ask not. I mean, many of us, we don't like to say this. We don't like to admit this. And in fact, it's kind of embarrassing. We're functional atheists. We're practical atheists. We don't go to God. We go to Google. We ask our parents. We ask our professors. We ask the experts. We only pray when things get really, 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 really bad. So most of us, we have these missing prayers. Or most of us, if we don't have missing prayers, the only prayers that we do have is me-centered prayers. Lord, please serve me. Lord, please bless me. Lord, please protect me. And here's how you know that you pray me-centered prayers. When your life falls apart, you get mad at God. God, I can't, why am I sick? God, why is my son acting crazy? And then you, you say something like this, or maybe you don't say it out loud. I, I thought the deal was, this is religion. I thought the deal was we went to church and we did community group and we did all these things. And then if we did all these things, nothing bad would happen because you exist to serve me. I don't exist to serve you. In fact, you didn't create me in your image. I create you in my image. And I want you to treat me exactly how I think I would treat me. Because you're just a bigger, smarter version of me. 
Or, or the third is if it's not me-centered and, and it's, it's not missing, it's many prayers. I mean, listen, now hear me say this. At one level, we can talk to God about anything. He's our dad. And there's an intimacy there and there's an honesty there. And you can ask God for help on your homework, okay? All of that. Here, that's, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. That, okay, but I'm not talking about that for a second. I'm talking about, honestly, I think God is bored with most of your prayers. God is tired of getting you safely from work and back. Whatever traveling mercies mean, okay? <laughs> I think the next time you pray, Lord, please help this food to bring nourishment to my body, I want God to say from heaven, that's what food does. You don't need to pray about it, right? We have all of these many little prayers. And the most time we pray is over our food, maybe, right? And it gets awkward because that's the only time we pray. Do we pray if the soup comes? No, not of the soup. How about the salad? Not of the salad. Appetizer. Yes, let's pray with these appetizers. I mean, we, we, our, our lives and our prayer lives have shrunk down to we decide what piece of food we pray over. That's it. Or memorize mechanical prayers. Now, as a recovering Catholic, okay, I'm very familiar with this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Mary. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I have no idea what that means. Uh, I memorized it when I was in second grade, along with... Bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I'm sure it means something. I'm sure the person who wrote it, I'm sure there are many Catholics who it's meaningful to them. But most people, it's, and by the way, if you have mechanical memorized prayers, what you tell me is you think of your relation with God as a distant relationship with God and a formal relationship with God. And again, it's, it's usually a sign of religion, not relationship. Now listen, as Protestants, and if you didn't know you were Protestant, Hello, this is a Protestant church. <laughs> if not, you're like, is this, is this the Catholic church? Uh, we're going to have communion uh, one of these Sundays. You can call me Father, Father Kyle, okay? Um, <laughs> but um, uh, as Protestants, we have our own memorized mechanical prayers that we often you'll see in your children because they'll mimic you. It's like, okay, let me give you an example of a memorized prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. Okay, if you were on life support yesterday, that's a great prayer. But for most of us, that's it. Most of you are just saying things. You're just saying things. You're saying the same things you've heard everyone else say. You're not engaging your heart. You're not engaging your mind. You're not thinking about Scripture. You're not seeking God's face. It's memorized. God, help us. Look what he says here, how he ends. Let's look at their prayer. The kings of the earth, he's quoting scripture, verse 26, set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Basically, I see God is in control of those who are in control. That's what he's praying. He's getting outside of his situation and outside of his circumstances, and he's seeing God's investment and involvement. Look what he says, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and get us out of here. That's all he prays. He says this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue 
to speak the word of God with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is amazing. What they pray is not for safety, but to be strong. I mean, get this. This is, this is transformative. What they pray is not for protection, but for power. What they pray is not to escape, but to be enabled. They want divine enablement. They want boldness. How many of you, you need to pray for God to give you what you need to accomplish his mission? This is what happens. In fact, in verse 31, they finished praying. Look, and when they had prayed, there's an old saying that says you need to pray until you can pray and pray until you have prayed. Pray until you can pray is pray until you break through and you go, I'm actually praying. It took five minutes. I needed to put a worship song on. I needed to go on a walk. I needed to get out of my environment. I needed to go on a drive. I'm actually praying. You'll know when that happens. I'm not mechanical. I'm not me-centered. I'm not mini-praying. I'm actually praying. And then you pray until you have prayed. What does that mean? I've prayed until the burden has been transferred. I prayed until the person has been interceded for. I prayed until I've worshiped. Here's what happens here. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. They say their prayers, they face their fears, they say their prayers, they face their fears, and they do that until they die or Jesus comes back. That's what we do. Years ago, I was in, uh, at a different church, and we had a uh, missionary come visit us, and he was in Dubai. And his whole ministry was about ministering to college campuses in Dubai and all this kind of stuff there. And, and it was really, uh, Dubai is the oasis of the Middle East. It's, it's where you go to go everywhere else in the Middle East, missionary thinking-wise. Anyway, and he's telling us the story. He says, guys, in the last six months, we're seeing people converted and people baptized and people sent to different campuses and lives change. And, and we said, what are you doing differently? Someone raised their hand. said, what are you doing differently? He says, one thing we're doing differently in the last six months, we're taking more risks. What would it look like for you to take more risks, to be more bold? Let me ask you this. Where do you need to face your fears and speak and be willing to suffer? My guess is it's going to be over the holiday season. And there's something that you need to say to your aunt or your uncle or your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or your brother, and you need to speak. And you need to go, it's okay. I need to speak and be willing to suffer. And... The other thing is we need to be praying more bold prayers. Let me ask you this. If God answered all of your prayers this last week, who would get saved? Who, how many baptisms would we have because God answered every prayer you've prayed over the last month? What, here, here's a kind of convicting question. Would anybody get saved? If God answered all your prayers, would, would instead, would Wake Forest just keep winning football games? And you get your bonus? And he asks you out? What would it look like if everybody in here said, I am committed to moving forward by facing my fears, saying my prayers? If we would live bold lives and say bold prayers, I think the Lord would greatly use it for his glory in this city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to say our prayers and to face our fears. Give us the right expectations for our lives, Lord. Let us this week see the questions we're asked and the opportunities to share the gospel. We pray this in your name.
Amen.